8. Para more leg does not mean that the case is hopeless. Poisonous plants There are two kinds of poisonous plants, those that are poison to the touch and those that are harmless unless taken inwardly. Both may be avoided when you learn to identify them. Poison ivy We are apt to think that everyone knows the common poison ivy, but that some people are not familiar with it was shown when one beautiful autumn day a young woman passed along our village street carrying a handful of the sprays of the vine, gathered probably because of their beautiful coloring, noticing that she was a stranger, no doubt from the city, and realizing the danger she was running of poisoning herself or someone else. We hurriedly caught up with her and gave first aid to the ignorant in a few forceful remarks. The result was that, without a word, the young woman simply opened her hand, dropped her vines on the walk, and hurried off as if to escape a pestilence. We were left to close the incident by kicking the stuff into the street that some other equally uninformed person might not be tempted to pick it up. If you do not know the poison ivy, remember this, it is the three-leaved ivy. Its leaves always grow in triplets as shown in illustration. The leaves are smooth, but not glossy. They have no teeth but are occasionally notched. Sometimes the plant is bushy, standing a foot or two high. Again it is trailing or climbing. It loves fence corners and big rocks to clamber over. It will also choose large trees for support, climbing up to their tops. The flowers are whitish and the fruit is a pretty, green-gray berry, round and smooth, which grows in scant clusters. Poison ivy is found through the country from Maine to Texas and west to South Dakota, Utah, and Arkansas. Some people are immune to ivy poison and, happily, I belong to the fortunate ones. Many persons are poisoned by it, however, and it may be that fear makes them more susceptible. On some the painful, burning eruption is difficult to cure. Poison oak The poison oak closely resembles the poison ivy, and is sometimes called by that name, but its leaves are differently shaped, being oval in outline with a few coarse, blunt teeth. They are also thicker and smaller than the ivy leaf. The poison oak is plentiful in cool uplands and in ravines, and is general throughout the Pacific coast from Lower California and Arizona to British America. Poison sumac, or swamp sumac another member of the same family is the poison sumac. They are all three equally poisonous and act by contact. The poison, or swamp, sumac is a high, branching shrub closely resembling the harmless species which grow on high, dry ground. The poison variety chooses low. Wet places, the leaves of the poison sumac are compound, with from 7 to 13 leaflets growing from one stem. As the leaves of the walnut tree grow, the stalks are often of a purplish color. The leaflets are oval in shape and are blunt at the tip. The surface is smooth and green on both sides and they have no teeth. The autumn coloring is very brilliant. The flowers are whitish green and grow in loose clusters from a stiff middle stalk at the angles of the leaves. The fruit is a gray-green berry growing in scant drooping clusters. This gray drooping berry is the sumac poison sign, for the fruit of the harmless sumac is crimson and is held erect in close pyramidal clusters, which hazel ponds extract is used as a remedy for all of these poisons, but it is claimed that a paste made of cooking soda and water is better. Alcohol will sometimes be effective, also a strong lye made of wood ashes, salt and water will give relief to some. It seems to depend upon the person whether the remedy, as well as the poison, will have effect. Yellow lady slipper growing in bogs and low woods from Maine to Minnesota and Washington, southward to Georgia and Missouri. There is a sweet-scented, little yellow and brown flower called the yellow lady slipper, the plant of which is said to have the same effect when handled as poison ivy. This flower is an orchid. The stalk, 
from one to two feet high. There is a single blossom at the top, and the leaves, shaped and veined like those of the lily of the valley, grow alternately down the stem. The plant does not branch, like the ivy. The yellow lady slipper does not poison everyone. I know of no other wild plants that are poisonous to the touch. The following will poison only if taken inwardly. Deadly nightshade to the nightshade family belong plants that are poisonous and plants that are not. But the thrilling name, deadly nightshade, carries with it the certainty of poison. The plant is an annual and you may often find it growing in a neglected corner of the garden as well as in waste places. It is a tall plant, the one I remember in our own garden reached to the top of a five-foot board fence. Its leaves are rather triangular in shape. They are dark green and the way the edges are notched rather than toothed. The flowers are white and grow in small clusters. The fruit is a berry, round, black, and smooth, with calyx adhering to it. The berry clusters grow at the end of drooping stems. This must not be mistaken for the high bush blueberry, for to eat the fruit would be most dangerous. The antidotes for nightshade poison are emetics, cathartics, and stimulants. The poison should be thrown off the stomach first. Then strong coffee be given as a stimulant. Pokeweed. Pigeonberry pokeweed comes under the heading of poisonous plants though its berries are eaten by birds, and its young shoots are said to be almost equal in flavor, and quite as wholesome, as asparagus. It seems to be the large perennial root that holds the poison, though some authorities claim that the poison permeates the entire plant to a certain extent. The root is sometimes mistaken for that of edible plants and the young leaves for those of the marsh marigold which are edible when cooked. It is a tall plant with a stout stem and emits a strong odor. You will find it growing by the wayside and in rocky places. The leaves are oblong and blunt at the tips and base. They have no teeth. The small white flowers are in clusters. The fruit is a small, flat, dark purple berry, growing in long, upstanding clusters on a central stalk. The individual stem of the berry is very short. The name inkberry was given to the plant because of the strong stain of the berry juice which was sometimes used for ink. Pokeweed is at home in various states. Maine to Minnesota, Arkansas, and Florida. Poison hemlock The poison hemlock is well known historically, being in use at the time of Socrates, and believed to have been administered to him by the Greeks. It is quite as poisonous now as in Socrates's day, and accidental poisoning has come from people eating the seeds, mistaking them for anise seed eating the leaves for parsley and the roots for parsnips. The plant grows from 2 to 7 feet high, its stem is smooth and spotted or streaked with purplish red. It has large, parsley-like leaves and pretty clusters of small, white flowers which grow, stiff-stemmed, from a common center and blossom in July and August. When the fresh leaves are bruised they give out a distinctly mouse-like odor and they are very nauseating to the taste. Poison hemlock is common on waysides and waste places in New York. West Virginia, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Ohio. It is also found in New England and Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, Louisiana, and California. The treatment recommended by professionals is emetics, warmth of hands and feet, artificial respiration, and the subcutaneous injection of atropine, administered by a physician. Water hemlock Water hemlock is similar in appearance and in effect. It is found in wet places and on the borders of swamps. The remedies are the same as for poison hemlock. Jimson wheat The Jimson wheat is very common in Kentucky. I have not seen so much of it in the east and north, but it appears to grow pretty nearly over the whole United States. It is from 1 to 5 feet in height, and an ill-smelling weed, though first cousin to the beautiful, cultivated datura, 
which is a highly prized garden plant. The stem is smooth, green, stout, and branching. The flower is large, sometimes four inches long, and trumpet-shaped. There are several varieties of this weed, on some the flower is white, on others the five, flaring, sharp blonde lobes are stained with lavender and magenta. The calyx is long, close-fitting, and light green. The leaves are rather large, they are angularly oval in shape and are coarsely notched. The fruit is a prickly, egg-shaped capsule which contains the seeds. It is these seeds which are sometimes eaten with serious results, and children have been poisoned by putting the flowers in their mouths. Emetics should immediately be administered to throw the poison off the stomach. Then hot, strong coffee should be given. Sometimes artificial respiration must be resorted to. In all cases of poisoning a physician should be called if possible. The habit of chewing leaves and stems without knowing what they are should be suppressed when on the trail. It is something like going through a drugstore and sampling the jars of drugs as you pass. And the danger of poisoning is almost as great. Toadstools unless you are an expert in distinguishing non-poisonous mushrooms from the poison toadstool. Leave them all alone. Many deaths occur yearly from eating toadstools which have been mistaken for the edible mushrooms. Chapter IX on the trail with your camera what to photograph and how you cannot depend entirely upon your memory to recall the sights and adventures of the trail. And will be only half equipped if you go without a camera and notebook. Several clicks of the camera will record the principal events. While your notebook will fill in the detail. Selecting a camera in selecting a camera remember that every ounce in weight counts as to when on the long trail. And that to have to carry it in your hand is most troublesome and inconvenient. The folding camera which can be hung over your shoulder with a strap, is therefore the best, and do not try to carry plates, they are too heavy, it is of little use to consult the clerk of a photographic supply shop about the style of camera you should buy, as a rule he is not chosen for his knowledge of the goods, and his advice may be worse than none, the better plan is to secure descriptive catalogs from dealer or manufacturer before investing, and study them well, the catalogs will tell you the price, the size, the weight, and what kind of work each variety of camera will do, and you will learn the advantages and limitations of many before deciding upon one, how to know your camera the camera once bought and in your hands, the next thing you do is to become thoroughly acquainted with it, with your camera you are entitled to a little book of instructions, take your camera and the book, sit down alone, and give them your entire attention, read the book carefully and, at the same time, Carry out the instructions while the camera is unloaded. That island without the film. If the size of the diaphragm can be changed, change it and look into the lens to see the effect. Also try adjusting the shutter and watch the lens for the effect of instantaneous and time exposures. Try the focusing scale. Locate some image in the finder. And practice holding the camera pressed closely against your body. Pointing neither up nor down. Tipping neither to one side nor the other but aim directly at the object you are supposed to be photographing. Then try turning the key which brings the film exposures into position. Loading the camera learn how to load and to unload. First without enrolling your film. Afterward adjust the roll in the camera and see that it is properly placed and will turn easily. Before you loosen the end of the film. If you detach the gum paper which keeps the film tightly wrapped before placing the roll in the camera. The whole film will spring loose from its spool and become light struck before you can adjust it. Count the turns of the key with your first roll of films it is well to learn and remember the number of turns you must give the key to bring a new exposure into place. With my camera which takes a 4x5 picture, 5 turns of the key are necessary between the exposures. 
Knowing this, I count, and when the fifth turn is reached I complete it slowly, watching carefully the while for the new number to appear in the little red celluloid window. In this way, even when hurried or excited, I do not lose an exposure by turning the key once too often. Always remember to place a new exposure directly after taking a picture, to make sure that you will not take two on one film. In making ready for a new subject count again, for there are four things one must be sure of with most cameras before taking a photograph, and by counting you will know if any have been omitted, one see that a fresh exposure is in place, to see that the shutter is properly adjusted for instantaneous or time exposure, three see that diaphragm stop is set at the proper opening for the light you will have, four see that the distance is correctly focused, there are cameras, however, that are of universal focus and do not need adjustment. These are convenient ones for the trail, as they are always ready and can be used quickly. Being small, they are also light to carry. Be economical with your films. A very important thing to learn when taking photographs is to be economical with your films, and especially is this so when on the trail, for your supply is then necessarily limited, merely for the sake of using the new toy. Many amateurs will photograph subjects that are not of the slightest interest to anyone, and very often, when a scene or object does present itself that is well worthwhile, all the films will have been wasted and no picture can be taken. Plan your pictures to illustrate your trip It is a good idea to plan your pictures so that they will illustrate your trip from beginning to end. A snapshot of your party starting on the trail, another of the country through which you pass, with, perhaps, one or two figures in it and the remainder of the films used on objects of interest found on the way. If you can secure pictures of any wild animals you may see, they will make the series doubly interesting and valuable. When you go into camp a view of the camp should be included. When the pictures are printed right on the back of each one it represents, where taken, and the date, they will then be valuable data as well as trustworthy reminders. Backgrounds look for the best view of a subject before using your camera, there is always a choice. One side may be much more pleasing or more characteristic than the other, or may show interesting details more plainly. If you have studied drawing you will be able also to find the view which makes the best composition. The background, too, must be considered, and the position of the sun. The simpler the background the better. Nearby foliage is not good for figures, it is too confused and the figures will mingle with it. Sometimes the adjustable portrait lens, which can be slipped over the other will obviate that trouble by blurring everything not in exact focus, and this lens will allow you to stand nearer the object and so make it larger on the film. It is not intended for distant views and the camera should not be more than 6 feet from the subject when it is used. Quiet water makes an excellent background, also distant foliage and hills, flat fields and meadows. These may be obtained for figures, but often the very things you want to photograph most are in the woods with foliage close to and all around them then you must simply do the best you can under the circumstances. Color values in photographs Another thing to remember is that, unless in broad sunlight, green will take dark and sometimes black, and brown or tan, being of the same color value in the photograph, will mingle with and often be lost in the background. If you are photographing a tiny animal, and most wild animals are tiny, try to get it when in the sunlight with a dark or flat background or else against a background lighter in color than the animal. For instance, a red squirrel or chipmunk will be lost amid, or against, the foliage of a tree, but on a fence rail or fallen log it will stand out distinctly. If you have a chance at a beaver it will be near the water, of course, 
then the choice view will be where the water can form at least part of the background. If the shore is at the back it may be difficult when the print is made to find the beaver at all. In the interesting photograph shown here the beaver is against the light trunk of the tree which shows where he has gnawed it almost through. In all this the position of the sun must be taken into account, but the rule of always having the sun at your back, like most other rules, has its exceptions. I have found that so long as the sun lights up the object, even when from one side, I can secure a good picture, but I never allow it to strike the lens of the camera, and I make sure that the subject is not silhouetted against its background by having all the light at its back. Photographing wild animals It is not easy to photograph wild animals after you have found them, but you can do it if you are quick to see and to act and are also patient enough to wait for a good opportunity. You will often find deer feeding in sunlit places and can, if you stalk them carefully, approach near enough to get a good shot. If they happen to be in partial or light shadow, open the diaphragm of your camera at its widest stop and try for an instantaneous exposure. Very good photographs are sometimes taken by that method, and it is worth the experiment where time exposures are out of the question, as in taking moving animals. A snapshot will be of no avail if the shadow is heavy. However, and a short time exposure may sometimes be used, set your time lever at number 1, which means 1 second, and the lever controlling the diaphragm at number 16, and by pressing the bulb once you will have a time exposure of 1 second. An important thing for you to realize in taking animal photographs is the fact that though the creature may seem quite near as you see it with your natural eye, in the picture it will occupy only the relative space that it does on the finder. If it covers a quarter of the space on the finder it will cover a quarter, no more and no less, of the finished photograph. The wonderful pictures we see of wild animals are usually the work of professionals who have especially adapted cameras, but to take the photograph oneself makes even a poor one of more value. Shutter speed to photograph objects in rapid motion such as flying birds. The speed of your shutter must be at least one three hundredths of a second and you must have a fast lens, but with a shutter speed of one one hundredth I have taken very good pictures of things moving at a moderate rate. A walking or slowly running animal, for instance can be taken with a shutter speed of 1 100th. You should find out the speed of the shutter when you buy your camera. Then you will not throw away films on things beyond its possibilities. You press the button and we'll do the rest. Doesn't work where moving objects are concerned. Those who go gunning with the camera, stock their game as carefully as any hunter with a gun. And for really good results the following method is the safest to adopt. Time and patience are required, but one does not mind giving these. The interest is so absorbing and the successful picture so well worthwhile. Set your camera like a trap find the spot frequented by the animal or bird you are after. Wait for it to go away of its own accord while confident and in frightened. Then set up your camera like a trap where the lens will point to the place the bird or animal will probably occupy upon its return. If it is a nest it will be easy. For you can be sure the bird will come back there and can adjust your camera to take in the entire nest. Where there is no nest. Sight your camera upon some object between which and the lens the creature must come in order to be within focus, and trample down any undergrowth that may obstruct the view. Make sure that your focus is correct for the distance and that the film will take in the whole animal. You can provide for this by staking off the probable size of the animal at the place where you expect it to stand, and then looking in the finder to see if both stakes are in focus. You will probably have to erase the camera from the ground and perhaps dip it a little. For the salo tripod is best but if you haven't that, and very likely you will not, a convenient log, 
stump, or stone will answer the purpose. If even these are not handy you can build up a stand of stones or small logs, or pile earth into a mound. Whatever material you use, the stand must be made strong and firm. To have it slip or slide is to lose the picture. Make your camera perfectly secure and immovable on the stand. Then tie a long cord to the release the small lever which works the shutter. The cord must be amply long enough to reach to the ambush where you will hide while awaiting your game. The ambush may be a clump of bushes, a convenient rock, or a tree behind which you will be concealed. If there is no such cover near you can make one of brush and branches. When the cord is carried from the camera to the ambush hide the camera with leafy branches, leaving a good opening for the cord to pass through to prevent it from becoming entangled. Then hide to your cover and, with the slightly slack cord in your hand, await the coming of your game. Taking the picture as the animal approaches the camera grasp your cord firmly and steady your nerves to act quickly. And when it is in focus, not before, give a quick, firm pull to the cord, releasing it immediately, and the thing is done. Don't become excited at the critical moment and make your shot too soon or jerk the cord too hard. If a bird is to be taken upon the nest and the nest is in shadow a short time exposure can be given, or a bulb exposure. For bulb exposure set the lever that controls the shutter at meaning bulb, and the lever controlling the diaphragm at number 16. When the bird has settled upon its nest pull the cord, count three slowly, and release it. The shutter will remain open as long as the cord is held taut and will close when released. This method cannot be used for long-time exposures. When you become more practiced in the art of wildlife photography you will know how much time to allow for the exposures. There will be some failures, of course, but one good photograph among several will repay you for all your trouble and will make you keen to try again. Photographing the trail you can get a good picture of the trail with a snapshot when it is in the open, but a forest trail must have time exposure. When your eyes have become accustomed to the dim light of the woods it will not seem dark, and you will be tempted to try a snapshot because it is easier, but if you do you may certainly count that a lost film. It is not possible to hold your camera in your hands and succeed with a time exposure of over one second. The beating of your heart will jar it. A breath will make it move. So some kind of a rest must be found as when taking the animals with bulb exposure. If the light is very dim first set the lever controlling the shutter at the point time. Then set the lever for the diaphragm at number 16, press the bulb, and allow from 15 to 20 seconds, or even 30 seconds, exposure, timing without a watch you can time it without a watch by counting in this way, 1 and 2 and 3 and up to the number of seconds required, 1 and is 1 second, when the seconds have been counted, press the bulb again and if the camera has not moved you should have a good negative, no hard and fast rules can be given for this work because conditions vary. You must rely some on your judgment and learn by experience. It is said that overexposure is better than underexposure and can be handled better in developing the films. So when in doubt it is well to allow a little more time than you think should be necessary. Curious results sometimes come from underexposed films. I once had a print in outline, like a drawing, from a negative made in the Rocky Mountains. It did not look in the least like a photograph. There were no shadows, but it was a good illustration of the scene. Photographing flowers and ferns if your camera will focus so that you can place it near enough to take small objects such as flowers and ferns. Another field of interest is open to you and you can add a record of those found on the trail to complete your series. A camping trip will afford better and more unhurried opportunities for photographing flowers than a one day's trail.
unless you carry a box or basket with you for securing specimens that you can take back and photograph at leisure. Do not break the stems of the flowers or plants. Take them roots and all. Loosen the soil all around and under the roots so that which clings to the plant may be undisturbed and taken up with it. If the soil falls away, cover the root with damp loam or mud and tie it up in a large leaf as an illustration. This method not only keeps it from wilting but will enable you to take a picture of the growing plant with all its interesting characteristics. If you put your plant with its clod of earth in a shallow bowl, pour in as much water as the bowl will hold, and keep it always full. It will remain fresh and vigorous a long while and may be transplanted to continue its life and growth after you have finished with it. Illustration, method of protecting roots to keep plants fresh while you carry them to camp for photographing but around the roots wrapped in leaves just here must come the caution not to tear up wild plants by their roots unless they are to serve a real purpose. Some of our most beautiful wild flowers and rarest ferns are now in danger of being exterminated because of thoughtless and careless people who, in gathering them, will not even take the trouble to break the stems. When the roots are gone there will be no more flowers and ferns. Look at the date on your film even the best photographer cannot take good photographs unless he has good films. On the box of every roll of films is stamped the latest date when it may be safely developed and it is foolish to try to have a film developed after that date has passed. When you buy your films be sure they are fresh ones and that the date ensures you ample time, one year ahead is none too long. Do not open the box or take the wrappings from a roll of films until you are ready to load your camera. Then save both box and wrappings. And when your films have been exposed, use them for covering the roll again. Keep the wrapped and boxed rolls in a dark place until they can be developed. Dampness will spoil both films and plates. If you are in a damp climate, or on shipboard, keep them in a tin box. Tightly closed. Chapter X on and in the water boat safe and in safe. Canoeing. Rowing. Pulling. Raft making. Swimming. Fishing safe and in safe boats one seldom goes on the long trail. Or into camp without encountering water, and boats of some kind must be used, generally rowboats or canoes. The safest boat on placid water is the heavy, flat-bottomed rowboat with oars secured to the oar locks. In my younger days we owned such a boat, and no one felt in the least anxious when I would put off for hours alone on the lake at our camp in Pike County. Dot, especially as the creaking turn of the oar locks could easily be heard at camp loudly proclaiming that I still lived while I enjoyed the luxury of solitary adventure. But a tub of this kind is not adapted to all waters and all purposes, and the safest boat on any water is the one best adapted to it and to the purpose for which the boat is used. Round-bottomed boats dip easily and should, therefore, not be used when learning to row. Though they are safe enough in the hands of those accustomed to their management, the best of oarsmen, however, cannot prevent her boat from capsizing if her passenger does not know how to enter or leave it or to sit still when aboard. Stepping in and out of a boat to step on the gunnel the edge of the boat will naturally tip it and most likely turn it over. One should always step directly into the middle in order to keep the boat evenly balanced, and in getting out, step from the middle. Stepping on the side or the gunnel of a boat shows the ignorance of a tenderfoot. There are rowboats that are neither round-bottomed nor flat but are shaped like the boat in photograph. Page 206. These are safer than the round-bottomed but are more easily capsized than the flat-bottomed boats. Canoes and canoeing If you are to own a canoe select it carefully, consult catalogs of reliable dealers, and, if possible, have an experienced and good canoe heist help you choose it. The pretty canoe made of wood will answer in calm waters and wear well with careful usage. 
but sportsmen prefer the canvas-covered canoe, declaring it the best boat for cruising, as it is light, easy to manage, will stand rough usage, and will also carry greater loads. The best make has a frame of hardwood with cedar ribs and planking, spruce gunnels and brass bang plates to protect the ends. This canoe is covered with strong canvas, treated with some kind of filler, and then painted and varnished. There are usually two cane seats, one at the stern, the other near the bow. These are built-in canoes vary in the shape of the bow, some being higher than others. The high bow prevents the shipping of too much water, but will also offer resistance to the wind and so impede the progress of the boat. A medium-high bow is the best. One firm of camp outfitters advertises a canoe called the Sponson, the name being taken from the air chambers built along the outside rail, which are called Sponsons. It is claimed that these air chambers make it next to impossible to upset the canoe, and that even when filled with water it will support a heavy weight. Sponsons can also be purchased separately and can be adjusted to any sized canoe. For a novice the Sponsons would seem a good thing as they not only ensure safety but, in doing away with the fear of an upset, make learning to paddle easier. Then there are the guide canoes made especially for hunting and fishing. They are strong, flat-bottomed, will carry a heavy load, are easy to paddle or pole, and will stand rough water. These canoes are good for general use on the trail. The prices of a good canoe range from $28 to $40. One may go higher, of course, but the essentials of the canoe will be,